You are listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Michael Epstein, board-certified plastic surgeon. Our guest is Dr. Peter Adamson, professor of otolaryngology head and neck surgery and head of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of Toronto. Dr. Adamson is recognized as an international leader in facial plastic surgery. Welcome, Dr. Adamson. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's get right into it. And why don't we talk about, you know, what are some of the typical problem patients that you see in your practice, Dr. Adamson? Well, let me emphasize that most patients are not difficult patients. Most of them really are, if not very good, at least good and satisfactory. But there's a small percentage, perhaps 5 to 15%, that are not good candidates. And certainly we don't want to proceed with them, both for their best interest and obviously sometimes the surgeons too. We see many different types of patients. One type of patient, we've actually put a name on the syndrome. We call it the Goldilocks syndrome. And these are the kinds of patients that come in and they're just not happy unless everything's just right. They're perfectionists. They're a little bit related to obsessive compulsive disorders, but every one of you who's a doctor practicing clinical medicine has had these patients where you spend your five or ten minutes maybe in a follow-up visit for any post-surgical reason, and everything seems to be okay. And just as you're ready to go out the door and say, we'll see you again in three months or whatever, they say, oh, by the way, or but but about this, and everything's been fine. They don't bring up any complaints or unhappiness until sort of the very end. And when you look at any aesthetic problem, if it's aesthetic surgery, the defect or deformity is usually within the limits of normal. It's part of the normal asymmetries, which we all have in our faces. And we call it the Goldilocks syndrome because it has to be just right. Nothing can be just a little bit hot or a little bit cold. So they're interesting and they can be challenging to make them happy at the end of the day. Another type of patient that we'll all see more of because we live in an increasingly multicultural world is the cross-cultural patient. And in particular, I've seen more of these patients in the younger group who are, for example, studying in America at university. They're from a different culture in the Middle East or Far East, for example, and they become quite culturized to North American ways. And for example, they might like to have a rhinoplasty to remove either the big bump or make their nose a little bit more elegant. But when you talk to them and say, well, have you spoken to your family about this who's back home? Well, no, they really don't think they'll need to speak to them, but they're going to get it done and they'll tell them afterwards. Now, sometimes in some cultures, particularly if they're particularly patriarchal, if the patriarch, or indeed the matriarch, then sees this result and feels that person has tried to alter their racial or cultural characteristics, then they can become very upset. And these patients won't always have the ego strength to withstand the dissatisfaction of their family members. And if there's any reason at all to be concerned about the result, then that will be transferred to the surgeon. So I think it is really important with individuals who are seeking changes, if they're not of you know, a North American culture, to be sure that what they're asking for is something that either suits their culture, their racial characteristics, or if it's going to be a little bit different, you really need to make sure they're a good candidate for it and they're going to have the ego strength and family support to do so. And a final type of patient that we see is titled exhausted surgeon syndrome. And this has been described for some time. And this is the patient who comes in 
and you speak with them, and they've virtually always seen other doctors, and they'll tell you this. They'll say, well, doctor, you're the first one who really understands my problems, and I'm so glad that I found you. And sometimes they'll even send you flowers the next day saying how terrific it was to meet you, and they're looking forward to working with you. And then when you do the operation afterwards, well, all of a sudden it's not quite right what you've done as well. And then you become the next surgeon who's let them down. And they will draw on you and draw on you by coming in and being dissatisfied. And finally, they'll just disappear into the night as well, and you know they've gone to another surgeon. I once had a patient come in and gave me a typewritten list of 113 surgeons whom she had seen for her facial concerns. And I was number 114. And so you can imagine that I did not perform any surgery on that patient, or I would have just been another in an exceptionally long list of exhausted surgeons. Who would you classify, if you can give me sort of a bullet point list, would make a good surgical candidate, sort of putting the contraindication sort of in the reverse? A good candidate has a very specific objective complaint about a facial feature that you yourself as a surgeon see and agree with. Furthermore, when they describe how they would like it improved, you realize that you can objectively, surgically achieve that result for them. Next bullet is that if you achieve that for them, remember, who wants to have surgery? This is just a tool that if you do that, they are going to have a psychological gratification in whatever form they're seeking. And they're going to have harmony between their spirit and their facial appearance. And harmony, of course, is beauty. And furthermore, that they're physically and psychologically fit, so they're a good candidate for surgery, and that if there might be some kind of complication or less than ideal result, you recognize and they recognize they have the ego strength to accept the small risks that are real but small and accept the small risks that if there is a problem, they can handle it. If all those things line up, then you probably have a very good candidate. I would imagine that the real key here is to identify the problems as early as possible Do you have any specific tips on how you would go about doing this? The first thing that we do, and I think everyone should do, is let the patient speak. We all know from many studies that, you know, I think the time frame varies, but it's something like between 17 and 28 seconds after a patient sits down in a chair and starts to tell their story, uh, the doctor interrupts them and starts to talk to them. So it really is important after initial chit-chat for a minute or so to get the patient comfortable, I always say, please tell me your story about whatever it is. And then as much as I can, I sit back and listen for two or three minutes. So the patient really rounds out what needs to be said. And then you can go back and fill in the details that you require. We do a full functional inquiry, just like we would for a patient who's coming in with you know, gallbladder disease or any other significant medical condition. And in that way, I think you establish rapport with the patient and get to understand them. Once that's done and you've examined the patient well, then I think you start to get a good idea as to whether or not you're going to be able to achieve you know, what they're seeking. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Epstein. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Adamson, professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and head of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of Toronto. We've been identifying some of the key early identifying factors for the problem plastic surgical patient. Dr. Adamson obviously is focusing on the uh, facial plastic surgery, but we can extrapolate to the body as well for many of these things. Dr. Adamson, do you have anybody else in your practice interviewing the patient, or do you have a questionnaire that you give the patient? 
We do have a questionnaire, which is a fairly straightforward medical questionnaire, but we don't have anyone interviewing them as such. But what's very important is there's an informal interview, which begins with our front office manager who takes the phone calls. And I do stress that we call her and treat her as the front office manager, not as a receptionist. And I very much listen to what she has to say about how patients interact with her on the phone and her sense of people. She has the authority in our practice not even to book or schedule a patient for a consultation if she feels that they're quote-unquote off and might be difficult. Or she might put a patient out a little bit longer period of time just so that we get a better sense of things. And then, of course, I am very fortunate to have a clinical fellow. He always uh, sees the patient on our second visit to go over all the details of surgery and discussing risks and complications, etc. So he gets a feel for the patient, and then our patient consultant also interviews that patient as well as our nurse. So we work as a team, and if anyone expresses reservations, then we do have a huddle and say, uh, what's our sense of this patient? How do we manage this? Gotcha. So several checkpoints along the way. Let's switch gears for a second because I think one of the more interesting thing that we haven't discussed is the effects of these difficult patients on our practices. Well, these patients can be very, very trying, and it's the old 80-20 rule. Hopefully, in this kind of patient, it's about a 95 to 5 rule that, you know, 5% of your patients cause you 95% of your grief. I think the first thing is, is that we surgeons are all, you know, trained and brought up to be you know, somewhat perfectionists in our own way, and we always expect ourselves to do things right. And so when we do have an unhappy patient or a problem, we first of all have to deal with our own sense of failure. Whether it's realistic or not realistic, it's something I think that's intrinsic to being a surgeon, that somehow we failed, whether in just doing this patient when we should not have, or in fact, you know, we don't always get perfect results. Let's face it, we don't always get a home run. As long as we get to first base or second base, that's terrific. But once in a while, in spite of our best efforts, we don't do well. So we have to deal with our own psychological feelings about it. And the first thing, of course, is, is sometimes anger or rejection, and we have to overcome that. And by, you know, utilizing some of the tools we've been discussing about, we need to take a proactive professional approach so that we can say this is a problem. We have to be honest with ourselves, identify it, and accept it. And rather than rejecting that patient, we have to embrace them. That means more visits to the office, which is something we don't really want to do when we have an unhappy patient. It also can be very hard on your office staff because these patients can take up an inordinate amount of time on the telephone, whether it's complaining or wanting to get specific appointments because they now expect to be treated specially. And your office staff can feel very traumatized psychologically sometimes by these patients. Then there comes the whole issue of, you know, is it a real problem that there might be a suit about it? And of course, we all recognize that there can be many suits, even if there's no really good medical basis, but that doesn't mean that you won't get a writ. And so you have to start to do all of the medical legal things, uh, whether it's talking to your insurance carrier, making sure you note everything exceptionally well in the chart. These things take your time and your energy. And then when these patients come in to the office, they can, of course, be uh, disruptive just to you. They're challenging or if they're really unhappy and making a nuisance of themselves, which is very rare, but it's not completely unheard of. One of my colleagues had a fellow in front of his office for three months with a sandwich board walking around saying what a terrible doctor he was. And he needed to get a court order to have this individual, you know, removed from the premises. So we have these patients, if we have an unhappy patient, we have them come in at the very last patient at the end of the day so that 
I feel, even though I'm tired at the end of the day, I have time to manage them and they don't feel rushed, which is an important thing for these patients. So, yes, I think they can be very demanding in many ways on a practice, and that's why we try so hard to avoid them and make sure that our patients are going to be happy. Let's talk for a moment about a patient that we've actually caused a problem where there's a real identifiable problem that was created by the surgeon. Well, that does happen. And I think the first thing is that you must be honest with the patient and hopefully, expectantly, you've had a really good informed consent so the patient at least recognizes that what has happened was a possibility. And so the number one thing, again, still is prevention. But if it has happened, I think the first thing is to say, this is what's happened, as best as you can describe why it's happened, and express to the patient that you're sorry for this. I know for a long time in medicine, we in surgery, we've had this, what shall I say, philosophy that we should not apologize or ever admit that there was an error. But even the medical legal carriers are now recognizing that this is the kind of thing that tends to make patients angrier, and sometimes all they want is an apology, and they want some understanding, which obviously reflects to them that you're respectful of their situation and respectful of what they're going through. So just because you apologize doesn't mean that you're saying that, you know, it was malpractice. Just bad stuff happens to good people sometimes. I think you really must, besides being honest, then tell them as best as you can how you're going to care for them. You'll see them as much as you need to. You'll do whatever you can to help them work through this, and you're going to be partners in their care. And then you must indeed do that, and you must share this with your office staff so everyone realize this is a VIP patient, and you're going to do everything you can to move forward. If there's something you can do surgically to improve something, maybe it is going to be a year later, but you tell them you'll do that. We don't charge patients for this kind of thing. I know some doctors do, but I look at it that if you go out and buy a really expensive car or something and there's a problem, you don't expect to take it back and have to pay more. So I think you build this into your fee schedule that you're going to have a certain number of patients you'll have to do a touch-up or revision on. Maybe it's only 5 or 6%, but build that in and then don't charge them. And sometimes you can take a patient who's had a poor result initially and you can make them really a great patient for life and they're very satisfied with the kind of you know treatment they've had and they understand if you selected them wisely to start with. Sure. That was terrific. And I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Peter Adamson. You've really hit some great issues and helped us sort of deciphering which patients could potentially be difficult. We've been talking about key issues in patient selection for plastic surgeons. I am Dr. Michael Epstein. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MDXM157. And thank you for listening.